New York City, 1995. We often speak of child prodigies, incredibly talented individuals who show exceptional advancement in their field at an early age. Take, for example, Pablo Picasso, who painted masterpieces at only eight years old. And then there's mathematician John Van Neumann, who was said to have been able to manage highly complex calculations in his head by the time he was 10 years old. But in the world of music, there was Erika Marini. Born in Austria in 1904, Marini was the daughter of a Viennese music school director. All of Erika's brothers and sisters showed considerable musical talent at an early age, but out of all of them, Erika's proficiency with the violin was the most formidable. At only 12 years old, she performed with the Berlin Orchestra and was celebrated by critics. She was recognized for her potential and was brought overseas to New York, where she became the talk of the music world. Knowing that his daughter was on track to become one of the greatest violinists in the world, Erica's father decided that she needed a worthy instrument. In 1924, he traveled to Paris, France, and purchased a violin once played by Russian cellist Karl Davidov. But the violin's history actually preceded the musician, who was once hailed by the likes of Tchaikovsky. This violin was one of a few hundred painstakingly handcrafted string instruments made by Italian artisan Antonio Stradivari. It wasn't just an expensive violin. As Washington Post journalist Amy Dickinson put it in a 1999 article, a bad day for Stradivari would have been a career day for a lesser artisan. And on a career day for the master, that's the Davidoff violin. Erica Marini would go on to play the Davidoff in countless performances and recordings. The instrument was said to have produced one of the richest, most exquisite sounds in all of the classical music world. That is, until the year 1976, when Erica Marini put down her instrument and, supposedly, never played it again. They say that Marini was a diva, hard to get along with, and a nightmare for her assistance. This may have just been because she was a talented woman who'd earned a considerable amount of recognition at a time when women weren't often celebrated. That, or she was just a cranky old lady. I'm inclined to take the middle ground here. In her later years, Marini retired to a lavish apartment on Manhattan's Fifth Avenue, a stretch of real estate typically owned by people that some New Yorkers might describe as stupid rich. Despite that, Marini was known as a penny pincher and notoriously thrifty. When her family suggested she should insure the Stradivarius, as it was unquestionably the most expensive musical instrument in the world, she refused, and simply kept it locked in a china cabinet right next to the good silverware and the gravy boats. Stubborn to a fault, she turned her nose up at security. She became a private music teacher who would hold lessons in her apartment. Her students thought her to be an obsessive, harsh perfectionist. Her own family members recall her being lovely when she felt she was playing well, and in absolute terror the next minute. There is a fine line between genius and madness, and it's possible that Marini towed that line with perfect pitch. And yet, she kept up correspondence, wrote letters to friends near and far, and was generally sociable. Her husband, Felice, absolutely doted on her, but when he passed away in the mid-1980s, Erica Marini's demons took hold. She became increasingly isolated, paranoid, and would hoard rolls of cash in her apartment. Her inner circle was restricted to a select few trustworthy individuals, including her goddaughter, Erica Bradford, who took charge of setting up the apartment for Marini's medical needs when the virtuoso became bedridden. 
Many instrument collectors and musicians alike came to Marini with offers to purchase the Stradivarius at exorbitant amounts, but each time she turned them away. She couldn't bear to part with her treasure, which she would always keep close in hand, showing it the same love one might have for their own child. In 1995, Marini's health declined, and she was brought to Mount Sinai Hospital. Erica Bradford and her daughter Valerie came by the apartment in the interim to do routine upkeep on what had become an untidy living situation. On the night of October 15th, Erica Bradford unlocked the china cabinet to ensure everything was in order as usual and discovered to her horror that the Stradivarius violin was missing, replaced with a decoy case. It had been taken, along with some of Marini's personal letters, musical compositions, and notes. Nobody had the heart to tell Erica Marini that a piece of her own soul had been stolen from her, and so the violin was replaced with a replica shortly before Marini returned to her apartment to die at home. She passed away less than two weeks after the crime, unaware that her priceless instrument had been stolen. It would be almost poetic if it wasn't so sad. The music and the musician both departed the known world around the same time. But after her loss was mourned, questions lingered. As the story got out and the FBI was called in to investigate, a strange and intricate narrative emerged, featuring a veritable whodunit of friends and family, all who had motives for wanting a piece of Erica Marini's talent and fortune. Who stole Erica Marini's Stradivarius violin? Ask any trained musician in the world which instrument plays the best, and most likely their answer will be anything made by Stradivarius. Since the late 1600s, the string instruments created by the Stradivari family have bewitched the musical world, but nobody knows what it is that makes them sound so good. Is it the handcraft that went into their work, the tuning of the strings, the composition, or is it simply the name brand value? Whatever their innate, almost magical power, the Stradivarius, or Strads as they're often called, are part of a long legacy of Italian craftsmanship. The violin was invented in Italy, and in the grander scheme of history, surprisingly not that long ago. It came about as an evolution of the Roman or Greek lyre, sometime in the 16th century. Nobody really knows who invented it exactly, though some historians point to Andrea Amati or Gasparo da Salo, both known violin artists from the city of Cremona. Cremona has been pinpointed as the most approximate origin of the famed string instrument. The violin was an immediate success with musicians all over Italy, and then Europe, 
bridging the gap between the lower and noble classes as it was popular and accessible to both street and court musicians. But of all the famous instrument guilds in Cremona, the Stradivari family is arguably the most widely known. Born at the end of the 1640s, Antonio Stradivari was a woodworker, though there is a lot of controversy and speculation as to how he became involved in the trade. Some say he was an apprentice to Amati, one of the supposed inventors of the violin. Other historians question this. Regardless, Stradivari would go on to perfect an almost unreplicatable technique when it came to making string instruments. He would experiment with construction, how varnish might affect the instrument's longevity or even sound, and produced violins so durable that, well, we're still playing them hundreds of years after his death. The highlight of Stradivari's career were the violins produced during what is known as his Golden Period, around 1700 until the 1720s. The Marini Stradivarius, dated to 1727, was made toward the end of this period, and there's debate over whether or not it qualifies. There was never a complete list in Stradivari's timeline, but it's believed that he created 960 violins over the course of his life. Just a little less than half of these are believed to still exist which, considering it's been almost 300 years, is actually pretty remarkable. The known strads usually take on the name of their most famous owner or owners, such as the case with the Davidoff Marini. The most expensive is aptly named the Messiah Stradivarius, priced at $20 million. It was made during his golden period and is now rarely played. However, the most expensive of his violins to ever be sold at auction is the Lady Blunt, at $15 million, all of its proceeds went to the relief efforts in the wake of the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami in Japan. Most of the Stradivarius violins are in the hands of private collections or collectors, publicly known and unknown, and as with any valuable works of art, or in this case, music, they've attracted criminal elements. While these following stories by no means play second fiddle to the missing Marini Strad, they are worth briefly noting. Take, for example, the Mendelssohn Strad, produced during Stradivari's golden period. The Mendelssohn family were descendants of the famous composer Felix Mendelssohn, but even this fame didn't spare their family's assets from being seized by the Nazis in World War II Berlin. The violin was noted by the Reich Finance Ministry, who took over the Mendelssohn property in 1940. After the war, the family hoped they might recover their treasure, but they were told that the violin had vanished during the Allied invasion and was taken from the Deutsche Bank. However, recent documents recovered from the bank suggest that it vanished from their inventory long before the invasion of Berlin. In any case, the whereabouts of the Mendelssohn are unknown. Another golden period violin created during the same year as the Mendelssohn was the King Maximilian Stradivarius. It was the victim of a 1999 burglary in Mexico City. The Maximilian was believed to have been one of the most perfect specimens of the craftsman at the height of his career, and other Stradivariuses have been stolen over the years as well. In most cases, law enforcement and investigators suspect that these violins were the targets of planned robberies. But the challenge with stealing a Stradivarius, as opposed to other art crimes, is that they're so easily recognized, so historically cataloged, that to try and sell one on the black market, or even in the underground, white-collar world of art theft dealing, would be profoundly foolish. There's no chance of financial gain without immediately running afoul of the law. 
And while all art crimes are inherently violent against the public or the owners of the art in question, the missing Stradivarius stings deeper than most thefts. Their owners, usually expertly trained musicians, often report a feeling as if a piece of their soul was stolen, or as if they lost a good friend. Erica Marini's story stands out because of the sheer drama, rumor, speculation, and mystery surrounding the diva's lost instrument. So let's go back to spring of 1995. At this point, Marini's health is fading, but she's assisted by her goddaughter Erica and her niece Valerie. From New Haven, Connecticut, which I'm going to add was the city of my birth, Valerie Bradford would ride the Metro North into Manhattan a few times a week to attend Marini's increasing medical needs. Valerie was already a caregiver, mostly for children, but she was hoping to find Marini a live-in nurse. Bradford hadn't been close with Marini for most of her life, despite their familial ties, until the violinist had begun keeping tighter control on her social circle. The ailing virtuoso even allowed Valerie to hold the violin, and from that moment on, the Bradfords realized that this instrument meant a whole lot more than its historical or even monetary value. During their repeat visits over the course of Marini's hospital stay, they would always check the cabinet to make sure that the violin was untouched. From what I've gathered, it appears they were keenly aware that it wasn't the most secure place to keep a 300-year-old artifact, and with so many people coming in and out of the apartment those days, they knew the instrument was vulnerable. On that fateful October evening, the Bradfords left Mount Sinai Hospital after a visit with Marini. Erica Bradford went to Marini's bedroom, took the china cabinet key from its box, and opened up the cabinet. But right away, something was amiss. The case had been swapped with a different one entirely. Erica alerted Valerie, and they both called the police right away to report the theft. Valerie went down to the lobby and alerted the doorman, who had been keeping track of the unusual visitors that had begun to frequent Marini's apartment in increasing numbers over the course of the last few months. And the rest is history. A replacement violin was ordered to keep Marini's final days as peaceful as possible, and the 20th century's most accomplished violinist died none the wiser to its absence. The crime soon hit the FBI's list of top 10 art thefts, along with the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, and a list of suspects began to grow. And there were many. It didn't help that Marini had accused people of stealing from her in the past, even before the start of her hospital stays and general decline. She had frantically troubled her building staff in the middle of the night, saying that people had taken diamonds and other stored valuables from her apartment. Her erratic behavior included waking up at odd hours and ransacking her own apartment for missing jewels. But in hindsight, what was taken as the tragic delusions of an ailing artist might have been a sign that Erica Marini was onto something. One of the people she accused of stealing from her was none other than her younger brother. Frank Marini, like the other Marini children, was musically taught, but he never pursued his talents. Instead, Marini became a connoisseur of the fine arts, purchasing and selling expensive paintings. While his sister was selling out concert halls, Frank was closing high-stakes art deals. Erica was as tempestuous as she was talented. Frank, cool, collected, and organized. Despite this, he claimed to have been close to his sister. But towards the end of her life, Frank was one of the names on Marini's lips as she tore up her apartment looking for missing valuables. According to those close to her, she believed that her brother was robbing her in secret. Frank confirmed that he believed his sister's accusations were sound, not the ranting of a demented mind. 
but he also knew that he wasn't the one behind the theft. He was aware of a diamond and a sizable portion of cash having gone missing, and suspected that someone close to Erica had done it. Or maybe he was just trying to throw the investigation off his trail. When the investigators contacted Frank, he was just as shocked as anybody to find the violin had been taken, but he was still a person of interest. After all, Frank was an art trader, and surely not all of his clients had clean hands. Something like a Stradivarius would fetch a massive sum, and if not that, the sheer bragging rights of owning such an instrument. Perhaps Frank Marini felt the violin should go to him after Erica's death, not just as another piece in his collection necessarily, but because he knew that nobody else would have revered it as much as Erica. Or was the thief none other than the eccentric busybody neighbor? New York City has no shortage of colorful characters. Trust me, I lived there for most of my 20s, and the artistic elite tend to draw in unusual personalities. Erica Marini's late husband, Felice, managed the affairs of Marini's apartment as she got older, and he had some help from within his own family. His cousin, Christine, was, by all accounts, quite the woman, having fought in the French resistance against the Nazis, and the Marinis invited her and her husband to live in the same apartment building. Christine's husband died within a few years of Erica's husband, though she remained socially active. Not surprising for upper-crust New Yorkers in the 1980s, Christine was a Republican, and at a political fundraiser in 1984, she was introduced to an eccentric, quick-witted Romanian refugee named Lucian Oresel. Lucian was an interesting character, with a past that he preferred not to delve into all that much. He claimed to be a political prisoner, likely under the Ceausescu government, and had fled to America in 1979, where he not only excelled in Harvard academia, but in the art of social climbing. As someone repressed under a despotic regime, Lucian had no love for communism and found the staunch capitalist ways of the American Republican movement appealing. So he volunteered his services as somewhat of a pusher within the world of lobbyists and publicists, i.e. the kind of guy pulling the strings in backroom deals. In any case, the widow Tomberg struck up a friendship with him, and with her being a lonely old lady, she invited him around often. Within four years, Tomberg took the unusual leap of adopting the near 50-year-old man as her legal son. Lucian became an apartment fixture, referring to Tomberg as Mommy, and those aware of the goings-on in the building seemed to believe that he had done everything he could to ingratiate himself within Erica Marini's life as well. When investigated, Lucian Orisil presented Erica as someone who took advantage of his generosity. In his own words, per Amy Dickinson's article on the saga, she would say, Lucian, pick up my medication, $200. She would say, put me in your car just to avoid taking a taxi. Erica owes me about $3,000. She used me for everything. She treated me like garbage. Everybody who helped her out, instead of tipping them, she would say, oh, I'm putting you in my will. We know now that she had $3 million, $900,000 in cash. We know it from the will. Now, this all tells us two interesting points. One, Erica had a pretty sizable fortune in her will. And two, somehow Lucian Oricel had gotten a look at it. As we'll see, the subject of Marini's will would become a point of contention among the many parties involved in her affairs. 
Oracell also insinuated that Marini may have signed off on the handing over of the violin in secret, and whoever possesses it now has documentation attesting their legal right to own it. But this is unlikely. If there was anybody who knew the financial dealings of the late violinist, it was Erica Marini's accountant, Peter Safier. He had actually been Felice's accountant until his death in the middle of the 1980s, at which point Safier was already known to Marini. As he was already part of the inner circle, Marini brought him aboard as her own accountant. When she passed away, however, Safier didn't have many kind words to say about his prior employee. He believed that Felice had tried to placate his wife by leaving all financial matters to him, and had practically robbed her of her own autonomy and decision-making. So when he passed away, she was virtually helpless. Safir was also the individual who helped Erica write her will, and was in fact her executor. According to him, Marini's music and notes were supposed to have been gifted to Boston University. The Stradivarius violin was to be auctioned off for three unspecified charities. Like Marini's other family members, Safir also encouraged Erica to get a better insurance policy on it. Peter Safir had intimate knowledge of Marini and her assets, and it wouldn't have been hard for a man so involved in her affairs to exploit Marini's trust. He was also the individual to suggest replacing the stolen violin with a replica, mostly to ensure Marini's emotional support. But of all the suspects in the Marini case, he's still the least likely to have committed the crime. There is actually someone who had tried to take the violin off of Marini's hands before, albeit legally. When Erica Marini retired in the middle of the 1970s, music collectors the world over came to her apartment with offers to buy the Stradivarius. A few times, Erica got close to selling it, but at the last second, she would always jack up the price or decline. This stopped a few up-and-coming violinists and dealers alike, but not Brian Scarstard. The New Yorker both made and traded violins, and he knew the value of the Davidoff Marini. A year before Marini passed away, Skarstad traveled to the apartment on Fifth Avenue in hopes of convincing her to sell him her prized possession. And he actually got close, closer than anybody else anyway. She offered him $4 million, an astronomical amount that, at that time, was unheard of, even for a Strad. Skarstad, like many others, pointed out that Marini had little to no security on the instrument. But instead of walking away from the deal, Skarstad became involved in Marini's affairs, doing little chores in the hopes of a reward. See a pattern emerging here? In this instance, Skarstad offered to find another buyer for her, but he may have secretly hoped and held out that the aging violinist might cave and sell it to him for a smaller amount. Like Orisol, Skarstad claims he was used by Marini but he was also a first-hand witness to the retired maestro's infamous tantrums. Marini, allegedly, would scream at her assistants and helpers. Skarstad recounts one woman in particular, hired by Erica Bradford, named Avis Walcott. Like the others, Avis is a suspect, albeit a minor one. According to Skarstad, Walcott lasted only one day before she quit. He recalls entering the apartment to find Marini yelling at Walcott from her armchair, accusing the caretaker of poisoning her food. Taking pity on the woman, Skarstad personally paid her the $300 she was owed for the day, lest more problems arise later on. 
Avis then cleared out of the apartment, taking with her a large black suitcase. And this, Skarstad found peculiar. Quote, that suitcase was definitely big enough to fit the violin in. And I thought to myself, now what's in there? And then I thought, now I'm being paranoid like Marini always was. Walcott went on to become a nanny, and when presented with the accusation, she merely laughed it off and said if she'd actually taken the violin, she certainly wouldn't be working in childcare anymore. Safe to say, she probably didn't do it. There is one final pair of suspects. The two individuals that were, by their own account, closest to Marini towards the end of her life. I'm talking of Marini's own goddaughter and niece, Erica and Valerie Bradford, the same two individuals who had alerted the police to the theft. One common thread in this real-life Agatha Christie slash Knives Out scenario is that Erica Marini was reportedly somewhat of a user. Everyone in her inner circle, including her own accountant, referred to her as thrifty and stingy, and many of them report that she all fed them the same line in lieu of any actual payment. I'll put you in my will, Marini would say. And many chose to believe it, because despite the fact that Marini was an aging, somewhat delirious shell of her former self, she had money. So when Mallory Bradford got swept up, like the others, in Erica's machinations, she believed the retired violinist was telling the truth and would pay her out handsomely when all was said and done. Towards the end of her life, Marini's apartment became cluttered, as the elderly woman was unable to manage it. The Bradfords would come by to tidy up and try to properly catalog anything of note. One day, when cleaning out Marini's closet, Valerie came across something she wasn't supposed to see. Marini's will. Bradford admits taking a peek, but swears that it was part of her protocol to examine any bank statement or receipt she came across as she was organizing Marini's affairs. She found out Marini's actual worth, $7 million, most of it going to charity. All Valerie would receive from it, for her efforts, was a single gold choker. So on the night of October 15, 1995, when Valerie raced downstairs to alert the doorman to the stolen violin, he didn't buy her story. You see, the Bradfords had presented themselves as concerned relatives of Marini, but others say they only appeared just a few months before her death along with a parade of other hangers-on who popped out of the woodwork to claim a piece of Erica Marini's fortunes. Valerie submitted to a polygraph test in hopes of proving her innocence. Both times, she failed. The reason why? A negative response whenever she was asked, Do you know who took the violin? Though the works of Stradivarius have vanished over the centuries, not all of them remain lost for good. Some have surfaced when thieves have tried to pawn them off, and this is one of the reasons why it's unlikely that the Marini Strad has been sold on the black market. It would be like trying to discreetly sell the Mona Lisa. These instruments are just too recognizable not to attract attention and alert authorities. They're poison, untouchable. Some stolen Stradivariuses have shown up, decades after the fact, when musicians have recognized them at auction. In 2014, a Strad was stolen when a thief tasered its owner. 
However, the taser released a coded confetti that police were able to utilize to track down the culprit. In one more embarrassing scenario, the Duke of Alcantara Stradivarius was left on the back of a violinist's car and it fell off onto the Los Angeles freeway. It was discovered, as fate would have it, by a violinist and a Spanish teacher who kept it under her bed for years until bequeathing it to her nephew. Only when said nephew's wife took the violin to a repair shop did the savvy workmen recognize what they had on their hands, and their trained eyes led to the violin's legitimate recovery. Many musicians own or have been loaned a Stradivarius, including celebrated cellist Yo-Yo Ma, and yet nobody, not even the most trained, can say what it is that makes a Stradivarius play so well. Blind testing, in which a Stradivarius is played alongside other well-made violins, has been undertaken since at least the 1800s. The result? Even the most well-crafted Stradivarius sounds as good as an imitation. As for the infamous Davidoff Marini Stradivarius, its whereabouts remain unknown for the time being. The FBI still has it listed among their top 10 art crimes. It is likely in the possession of one of the curious suspects involved in Marini's final months, or in the hands of someone they know. Armchair sleuths and professional investigators generally agree that if it was sold, then it was done so nearly airtight, as it would have otherwise sent up red flags immediately if it ever went to market. More than likely, it's sitting in a private collection. Less likely, Marini herself made a secret deal with a known confidant, someone she trusted beyond the vultures circling her apartment. If so, then it's fitting that she of all people in this story of greed and treachery should at least get the last laugh. Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. If you like this episode and want to pluck my heartstrings, you can rate and review Relic and Apple Podcasts. We also have a Patreon that has exclusive episodes, including the pilot episodes to my Paranormal Mystery Podcast from 2015, collaborations with other podcasters, and Tales from the Reliquary, which looks at weirder lost treasures that can't fit a full episode. Connect with me on Twitter at LostTreasurePod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. And of course, you can find me on Reddit as empty underscore C9. Next time, the Fabergé eggs were jewel-encrusted Easter presents fit for a czar. But when the Russian Revolution occurred, six of these precious works of art went missing. What happened to the lost Fabergé eggs? The adventure continues. (laughs) 